We read the Word of God in John 5, reading verses 19 through 47. John 5, 19 through 47. Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath day. Not only healed him, but then told him to take up his bed and walk. And both in the healing and in the command to take up his bed, the Jews are asserting that Jesus violates the Sabbath day. When Jesus says that his father works like this on the Sabbath, the Jews are all the more ready to kill him because he makes himself equal to the Father. And therefore, we read at verse 19, Then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, The Son can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth the Father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. For the Father loveth the Son, and showeth him all things that himself doeth. And he will show him greater works than these, that ye may marvel. For as the Father raiseth up the dead, and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son, that all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father which hath sent him. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word, and believeth on him that sent me, hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Verily, verily, I say unto you, The hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself, and hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. I can of mine own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another that beareth witness of me. And I know that the witness which he witnesseth of me is true. Ye sent unto John, and he bear witness unto the truth. But I receive not testimony from man, but these things I say, that ye might be saved. He was a burning and a shining light, and ye were willing for a season to rejoice in his light. But I have greater witness than that of John. For the works which the Father hath given me to finish, the same works that I do bear witness of me that the Father hath sent me. And the Father himself, which hath sent me, hath borne witness of me. Ye have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his shape, and ye have not his word abiding in you, for whom he hath sent, him ye believe not. Search the Scriptures. For in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. And ye will not come to me that ye might have life. I receive not honor from men, but I know you that ye have not the love of God in you. I am come in my Father's name, and ye receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him ye will receive. How can ye believe which receive honor one of another, and seek not the honor that cometh from God only. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuseth you, even Moses, in whom ye trust. For had ye believed Moses, ye would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if ye believe not his writings, how shall ye believe my words? This far we read the word of God. The third commandment says, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Let's turn to Lord's Day 36 and see the Reformed exposition of the third commandment.
What is required in the third commandment? That we, not only by cursing or perjury, but also by rash swearing, must not profane or abuse the name of God. Nor by silence or connivance be partakers of these horrible sins in others. And briefly, that we use the holy name of God no otherwise than with fear and reverence, so that he may be rightly confessed and worshipped by us, and be glorified in all our words and works. Is then the profaning of God's name by swearing and cursing so heinous a sin that his wrath is kindled against those who do not endeavor as much as in them lies to prevent and forbid such cursing and swearing? It undoubtedly is. For there is no sin greater or more provoking to God than the profaning of his name And therefore he has commanded this sin to be punished with death. Children, one subject you are taught in school is grammar. And as you're taught grammar and languages, you are taught The meaning of words, how to form words, when to use this word and when not to use this word. You are taught how to pronounce the words rightly and maybe even sent to speech therapy sometimes if you need help pronouncing your R's and other letters. You are taught to distinguish between words that sound alike or are spelled similarly but have very different meanings. And you are taught all of this because with words we communicate and people must understand what we are saying. In addition, you are taught all this because with words others communicate to us and God speaks to us and we must understand what He is saying. And there are times when at least some of you, and I could say this in any congregation, wish you didn't have to follow all these rules about how to spell and how to pronounce and do it this way and don't do it that way. But the goal, the goal is that you communicate well because that's part of covenant fellowship. Well, if we're taught these things in an earthly school, then it should come as no surprise to you that in the school of God's law, he also teaches us about words. Certain words, which are more important than others, ideas that are conveyed in words, and how rightly to express those ideas, and how not to express them. We're taught, first of all, the word about God. He reveals himself to us. And then in the school of the law... Jesus Christ says, Now you heard how God reveals Himself. How do you respond? What words do we use in response to the name of God? How do we glorify His name or do we not? Do we use it in, in a vain way and in a way that displeases God? This lesson is going to be taught again and again in the school of the law. It is the subject of the third commandment. Do not take the name, now we're referring to words, the name of the Lord thy God in vain. It is the subject of the ninth commandment. Do not bear false witness in your conversations with each other. Use your words correctly. But then it also is part of the keeping of the fifth and sixth and seventh and eighth and tenth, and other commandments of the law, which we violate sometimes in our words. And so it's important this morning that as we come to school, the school in which Jesus Christ is the teacher and master, and as we hear him instruct us regarding the right use of the name of God, we pay attention to our words, evaluate how we've used them, And be ready by His grace and in His power to use them more to His glory.
The third commandment forbids us to use the name of God in vain. What we're going to see this morning as we expound this commandment is how broad it is. If you thought it's just a narrow commandment, I just must be sure when I say God and Jehovah and Father that I'm doing it with fear and reverence, then we're about to learn that this commandment really involves and governs all our speech at all times. We are taught by Christ today in the school of the law, and the lesson is God's holy name. Let's first notice the lesson about God's revelation. Secondly, the lesson about God's authority. And thirdly, the lesson about God's holiness. The lesson begins with asking the question, what function do God's names or does his name in the singular serve? Draw attention to the fact that the the third commandment spoke of God's name, singular. And by that, he didn't just have one word in mind. He meant that everything about him is made known, conveyed, revealed in his names. Or to put it differently, All of his revelation is his name. Now there's another function that names serve than revealing, and that is identifying or distinguishing. Our names do that. That's why in a one family you never have a child that has the same, uh, two children I mean, that have the same first name. We give names so that we can tell this one apart from that one. When we address one, that one knows he's being called and not the other. So God gives us names to identify himself. To make known that in distinction from every other being that is called God, there of course are not truly other gods, but in distinction from every other being, he is the one only true God. His name God speaks of him as the one powerful one. His name Father indicates that there is none other who has given to all life and breath. His name Jehovah suggests that there is none other who is eternal and unchanging and infinite and faithful. His names identify and distinguish him, but they also reveal. And that's at the very heart of the lesson that we're making this morning. This is something God's names do that ours do not. The name James or David or Samuel or Elizabeth have perhaps some meaning in their origin way back when. But when a parent gives those names to a child, the parent is not saying this name expresses something that characterizes this child in a unique way. The name does not reveal the essence of the child. The names of Jehovah, however, reveal him. Why must they? Remember that even Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, in perfection, could not know God in their own power. Jehovah had to make known to them that He exists, that He is a God. He had to teach them that there was one who created the world. And He did that. He did that almost innately, instinctively. And yet it was His revelation to them before the fall by which they knew that there was a God. He has to reveal himself because he's invisible to the human senses. And because as you look around at all of creation, you don't see him. Now if he needed to reveal himself to Adam and Eve in the state of perfection, how much more do not sinners need to know Jehovah and can know him only by revelation? For what sin did is say of all that Jehovah was and all that he made known about himself, it's not true. This Jehovah's a liar. And therefore, Adam and Eve, and you and I in them, pervert the name of God right then and there when we say he is not the God, the good God that he says he is. As a consequence of which, 
Our hearts, minds, understanding, will is all blinded. We cannot know this God apart from His revelation to us in Jesus Christ. It is with a view to your salvation and mine that God makes Himself known and says to His people, this is who I am. And by using his words to do that in language we can understand, gives us to know him, love, and serve him. This revelation of God now is broad. Every name that Jehovah has, in the sense in which we think of name, every word or every set of two words that we would use to address him, is in itself revelation He is Jehovah, as we said, the faithful, unchanging one. He is Almighty God. He is the Holy One. And other terms are used in the Scriptures to make Him known. Do you notice, though, that so many of those names do speak of His attributes? We saw last week that God is Spirit. And his being spirit means that all of his attributes, perfections, virtues come together in him in a glorious way. What he's doing in giving his names is making himself known as he truly is. Jesus indicates that too as he's speaking to the Jews. And says, you never heard his voice at any time nor saw his shape, the Father. He needs somebody to make himself known. No. His names reveal Him. I mean now those phrases and words that we use. But more, Jesus Christ is the revelation of God. And therefore, Jesus Christ is, in this sense, the name of God. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. Made him known. John 1 verse 18. Jesus Christ reveals Jehovah God to sinners. And as he speaks to the Jews in John 5, he's doing that. To many of the Jews standing there, he's actually doing that to their condemnation. What's being understood is that God makes himself known in all his truth to every human in one way or another, and some, those who are not filled with the Spirit and regenerated, hate and reject that. They cannot even begin to keep the third commandment. They will trample the name of God underfoot. But God is, uh, Jesus Christ is emphasizing to the Jews that He is the one whom the Father sent and who shows all things. And who makes known what the Father would have him make known. He is the name that is the revelation of God. Thirdly, in addition to those terms that refer to Jehovah and to Jesus Christ, Scripture is the revelation of God and therefore is his name. And Jesus Christ appeals to this truth also in the passage when he's trying to demonstrate to the Jews that what he's doing, the works he's doing, the teaching and instruction he gives is nothing new, but is consistent with the Old Testament Scriptures. Search the Scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. He says in verse 39, If the Scriptures testify of Jesus, then they are the revelation of God, of who He is, and of His will to His people. And then fourthly, we're going to say today that in addition to those, the creation is the revelation of God. And that's consistent with what we confess in Belgic Confession, Article 2. That not only the act of God creating in the first week of history... But also creation around, especially the grandeur, the glory of creation, is a testimony to its creator. In this last week, you and I are reminded of that again. How can one behold the beauty of creation around? And say, no big deal. That's evolution. 
No. Jehovah makes known his glory. When in the third commandment, Jehovah forbids us to take his name in vain, therefore, he's not just saying, be careful when you use the name Jehovah that you do it in a right way. He's saying, rather, in whatever form you see the glory of God made known, respond with fear and reverence. The third commandment forbids us to take that name in vain. And that means don't use it in an empty way. You notice, the third commandment doesn't put it so strongly as to say, don't ever blaspheme that name. And that's interesting because sometimes the commandments speak of the farthest extreme, the most heinous sin a person could commit. Thou shalt not kill, murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. And that most extreme form of a sin encompasses all of the sins. And here, God doesn't do that. He says, don't even use it in vain, in an empty way. The Jews said, very good, we won't. You said not to use the name of Jehovah, our God, in vain. So we simply will not use the name Jehovah at all and will never be guilty of violating the third commandment. It's not so easy as that. And we're going to see presently that the Jews, in fact, are violating the third commandment here. But the positive principle that's set forth in our Heidelberg Catechism is that we use the holy name of God no otherwise than with fear and reverence. Whether it's in creation, or in the scripture, in Jesus Christ, or in those terms by which Jehovah reveals to himself to us, he makes known that he is a glorious, a great, and awe-inspiring God. And when you and I see that, we pause. And we stand amazed. And we say, He's making Himself known to me. And we say, I'd better be careful what I say about Him. Because, again, as the Heidelberg Catechism indicates, even if I'm not in church, And even if I'm not right now with the family about the family dinner table reading the Word, having family worship, every single thing I say about Him must be a worship and a right confession of Him. Thou shalt not take His name in vain. That's the lesson. And the test comes again and again and again and again. Walking through life and suddenly you're tested. Did you take the lesson to heart? These are surprise tests sometimes in that they're not announced. The lesson must be so ingrained in us that at the spur of a moment, when suddenly caught off guard, we are ready to confess His name with fear and reverence. The test comes every time we open up the Scriptures. Every time we take a Scripture verse on our lips. If Scripture is the name or revelation of God, the test comes when we come to the Word of God. Did you read it with understanding? Did you, and beloved, when I say you, I'm including myself in that. I should work hard to say we always. But if I don't, please understand. I mean to include myself in this. Did we pause before we open up the Scriptures to be sure we understood what a holy thing we were about to do? Or was it casual? Casual? 
We quickly read the Bible. It was the thing we had to do yet before we prayed and got away from the table. And therefore, we read it in vain. Empty. Meaningless. The test comes when we bow our heads in prayer. And did we just rattle off the words? Our Father which art in heaven. And forget what we mean when we say he is our Father. Or when we said our Father. Did we stand in awe of him? Bow before him who took a sinner like me. And made me and you his child. As we hear the gospel proclaimed. Have we come eagerly and attentively, especially to hear Jehovah speak to us and to grow in grace? Or is this too just some casual and customary thing we do? We fail the test. And in failing the test and recognizing that we fail the test, we must not despair of grace and of mercy But rather understand that when God impresses on us time and time again that we failed the test, He does not do so in order to say, you are such a rotten person, such a bad scholar, you fail and I will give you no place in my kingdom. But He means to see and impress on us that we might see how deeply we have failed so that we look again. To our Savior, who alone kept the law of God and used the name of Jehovah with fear and reverence and find in Him all our salvation. And He causes us to see how deeply we have failed the test so that in true sorrow, in grief that we have used His name in vain, We seek His grace more and more to begin to do so rightly. In addition to that lesson, there's a second lesson embedded in the third commandment. It's not one that's as clearly on the surface of the third commandment, but when we read and study the third commandment in light of the passage we read, it becomes clear There's a lesson here about God's authority. For if the name of God is his revelation of himself, then your and my taking that name on our lips is something we may do only with authority from him. Or... Your and my coming and acting and living in the church of Jesus Christ as those who have the Spirit of Christ in us is a conducting ourselves in the name of God. That's really what I, fo- what I want to focus on in this, com- in this part of the sermon. That so often in Scripture, you find references to doing something in God's name. And that means that we do it in the authority that the Holy God gives us. It's in this sense that Jesus speaks to the Jews. I am come, verse 43, I am come in my Father's name. Now he means by that that the Father sent him. And he indicates that in verse 37. That the Father sent him to do a certain work. And he indicates what that work is in the chapter 2. The works which the Father hath given me to finish, the same works that I do bear witness of me. The work of salvation, of accomplishing salvation, of of confirming the covenant that God has with us. The work of saving the church, therefore, but also the work of judging. So there's this man, at least to the Jews, that's all he appears to be as a man. And here, here he is on earth, And he's teaching as if he's God. Either he's a blasphemer, or they had better behold God in him and receive him as one sent from God himself. And all the works that he does, either 
He's trying to deceive all the more and impress you that he's someone he's not. Or he had better be received as one who does the work of the Father himself. He's come in the Father's name. He's come to do an official work. In doing that work, he will answer to Jehovah God. And in how you and I receive that one, we will indicate what we think of those who come in the Father's name. There's an application here to authority. When I make this point, I'm not, I don't think, already getting into the matter of the fifth commandment. I am setting forth a principle that will underlie the fifth commandment, that's true. But it's appropriate here, because there are people who function for you and for me and for our benefit in the Father's name. And the question is, what do you think of them? How do you receive them? How do you receive their instruction? When office bearers do their work, they come in the name of Jesus Christ and of Jehovah God. And that's why we can baptize a human, a man can baptize in the name, authority of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. When a father and mother are given a child and they raise that child, they do so, and we ought to remember this, in the name of Jehovah God. As one who represents Jehovah God and is going to answer to Jehovah for how we raise the child and therefore one who will raise the child the way Jehovah says to raise him. When the church gathers for worship, she does so in his name. And that's why Jesus could say that where two or three are gathered in my name, there I will be in the midst of you. Matthew 18 verse 20. And each one of us as we carry out the calling that falls to us in the office of all believer, does so in the name, in the authority of Jehovah God. And that's why Jesus will say in Matthew 18, verse 5, Mark 9, verse 41, and other places, whosoever receives a little child in my name, or whosoever gives a cup of water to one in my name, receives and serves me. What underlies the entire point that's at the heart of this lesson, the lesson about God's authority, is this. When Jesus Christ takes up abode in our hearts and lives by His regenerating grace, when His life comes into us, it's not merely That we have a different power. That now we can do things we couldn't used to do before. But there's more. Jesus Christ works His life in us so that we serve Him on His behalf. And so the principle with application to the third commandment is this. That if we are not going to take the name of God in vain, we receive those whom God sent in His name as those who have the authority of Jehovah Himself. And here is where the Jews were violating the third commandment. They made it so easy. We just won't use the name Jehovah. Then we'll never take His name in vain. And then Jehovah sends Jesus Christ... And Jesus Christ does miracles to show that He is the power of Jehovah in Him. He teaches what He meant by the miracles to point the people to the way of salvation. And the Jews say of Jesus Christ, You blaspheme. You are worthy to die. You are not the Son of God. You did not come in His name. And that is a violation of the third commandment. Of the law. I don't mean to boil it down to just the third. They hated Christ. They were ready to kill Christ. There is something about the fifth commandment and the sixth commandment and others that apply, but also this. Jesus underscores that this is their sin. 
Ye have not His Word abiding in you. That's God's Word. For all their knowledge of the Old Testament Scriptures and thinking that they were the people of God. Ye have not His Word abiding in you. For whom He hath sent, Him ye believe not. I am come in my Father's name, and ye receive me not. And what underscores, says Jesus to the Jews, the heinousness of your sin is this. If some other prophet would come in his own name, he doesn't have authority from God. He's a self-made prophet. He's here to deceive you. He comes and says, for my sake, in my name, you would receive him. But you don't receive one who comes in the Father's name. Well, the test comes to you and to me time and time again, doesn't it? When my elders and deacons come to me or my pastor, I might think to myself and maybe even say to them, all right, you wanted to talk to me, come talk. Give about 30 minutes and then it's time for you to leave. If I don't say it, that's what I'm thinking. Or do I say to them, Thank you for representing my Savior and coming to me with a view to the salvation and well being of my soul. And it might be, it might be that my soul, or at least I, didn't right away think I needed this. It might be that I could very quickly justify myself, but they came in my Father's name. It's in the spirit that a child is going to receive the instruction father and mother give. It's in the same spirit, children, that you're going to go to school tomorrow. Because teachers are going to teach in your parents' name. In behalf of and in the authority your parents give. And the parents' authority came from Jehovah God. So, when one teaches what God would have me know, and that's part of their calling before Jehovah to do, let me humble myself before that one. There is at the same time, a very sobering application to all who are in authority and who claim rightly to have the name or the authority of Jehovah in us. And that includes pastors. It includes office bearers. It includes parents. And that is that if we say we come in the Father's name and do our work in His authority, we do so with fear and reverence of Him. What characterized the false prophets? They came again in their own name, but they said they came in Jehovah's name. And they said, in Jehovah's name, don't worry, there will be peace. In Jehovah's name, they said, you aren't going to go into captivity. In Jehovah's name, they said, you are going to destroy all those who are coming against you. But Jehovah did not send them. And where do you see in the Old Testament Scriptures... More clearly than in other instances, that the Lord hates those who use His name in vain and will punish them with death than when you see Jehovah judging the false prophet. And that's the lesson to you and to me and all who have authority from Jehovah to bear His name. If we are functioning in His authority... Let us be sure we are Christ-like in our manner and God-centered in the content. How far short we fall and how we need Jesus Christ both to teach and empower us to keep the lesson. In the third place, there is here a lesson about God's holiness. Last week we drew attention to the attributes of Jehovah in general. But there is one, there is one 
that underlies the entire third commandment, and that is that Jehovah is holy. Let me explain in two statements or two thoughts what it means that Jehovah is holy. The first is that he's separate from sin. He doesn't sin. He hates sin. He will not and cannot sin. He has nothing to do, no fellowship with those sinners whose sins are not covered by the blood of Christ. He is holy. But sometimes we think that's all that holiness is. There's something more to Jehovah's holiness and something more to your and my holiness that he works in us. And that is that in holiness, he is set apart. This is why in the Old Testament, the priests were called holy. The instruments and vessels that they used in the temple were called holy. The sheep, the goat, that the farmer set apart from the rest of his flock because that one was going to be brought to the temple as a sacrifice was holy, set apart. Inherently, there wasn't any difference between the priest and the Israelite, between this lamb and that lamb, but it was set apart for Jehovah's use. And in that sense, Jehovah is holy. He distinguishes himself from every other being that he and he alone be glorified. That's Jehovah's holiness. Now because he is holy, his name is holy. The revelation of himself in scripture, in Jesus Christ, in the names he gives, in creation, all serve to make us extol and glorify and worship him and say, my God, my God, is greater than any other. My God is matchless. His name, His being, is holy. And every time God uses His own name, He does so to drive that point home. Jehovah does not make jokes about His name. He doesn't in Scripture, act frivolously about what he says about himself. When he sent Jesus Christ into the flesh, he did not do so lightly. He meant to display for all to see his justice, his mercy, his power, His grace, he meant to underscore his holiness in that he would punish sin. There is no sin more heinous to God than the vain use of his name. and Therefore he has commanded this sin to be punished with death. That was the Old Testament law again and again. You curse, you get stoned. Jesus Christ, the name of God, will bear the wrath of God. And will die on our behalf. Also to manifest that Jehovah makes himself known as a God of grace and mercy. There is therefore in the cross of Jesus Christ, in his death and resurrection, the great hallowing and the one most supremely proper use of the name of God that history will ever record until we come to the day of judgment. When Jesus Christ will hallow the name of God again by destroying those who hated that name and that God and bringing to heaven those whom he saved and redeemed. But if that's how Jehovah uses his name, that's how you and I must use his name. You might read a comic strip That means to portray Peter at the gate of heaven and somebody trying to enter in and Peter making some wise crack that makes you chuckle. But that is not how Jehovah meant his revelation to be portrayed. 
The world will abbreviate the name of Jehovah God or of Jesus Christ into some other form, gosh, geez. But I may not, and you may not do that, because his name is holy. And I may not ascribe that holiness to a cow or to smoke, because Jehovah's name is holy. How many television shows that you watch, how many songs that you listen to, do this all the time, but you keep listening and watching. But even then, the commandment isn't finished, and the intent of God, because the Heidelberg Catechism says, it's not only whether I do it or not, but when I hear somebody else do it, do I address it? Do I say, no, that's my God. He's holy. You don't stand in awe of Him. You must stand in awe of Him or fear, dread, terrified of what He'll do to you. And we do that in love. We ought to. With the view to the repentance of the one who did it. But no, not silence. And not connivance. Which is to say, I'll smirk, smile, and laugh. Now, there are several reasons, beloved, why we must take these last points I made to heart. Reason number one is that we don't like to rebuke others. What will they say when I do it? Will they think I'm the silly one? Guess what? The name of God is in you. That doesn't mean they're going to appreciate what you do. It does mean that how they respond doesn't say anything about you. It says something about them and their view of Jehovah God. That's reason number one why we must take this to heart. And young people, I would encourage you to do this amongst yourselves. Begin to do it within your circle of friends. Show within your closest friend group that you are not going to listen to the name of your God being profaned. Then as a group of friends, more broadly, you can go to others in your school or in your class and say, in a spirit of meekness and of love, you just said something about God. That you shouldn't have. And although I'm pointing it out, I'm not doing so in anger, not at you. I'm a sinner too. I understand the temptation, but we must not do that. The second reason why we must take these points to heart is that I find the longer I'm in the ministry, that if at catechism or in some other occasion I do address this subject with somebody, maybe they've just described holiness to a cow, and I address it, they look at me like I'm the crazy one. I think that might indicate that we've lost sight of the heinousness of this sin. And that in our homes, this lesson is not being taught as diligently and fervently as it ought to be. Therefore, in the name of Jesus Christ and in the love that Jesus Christ has for his church, I beseech you and would beseech any other congregation I were bringing this word to, to insist that in our homes, 
and in our circles. The name of Christ is used no otherwise than with fear and reverence. There's one time in our life, especially when we're going to need to be on our guard, and it's a reason why we must pray every day. And that's the moment when we're surprised, when we're shocked, when some word just comes to us that we weren't expecting, and that's when the, oh my, quickly comes out of our lips. But God, give us grace to be like the psalmist, Psalm 38, who said, I'm not going to speak either good or evil, lest what comes out of my mouth be evil and defiling to my God. Now, beloved, we fail the test. But Jesus Christ didn't. Kept it perfectly. He obeyed the law of God. Every use of the name of Jehovah God was with fear and reverence. Every action committed in the authority or in the name of Jehovah was committed in a way that pleases God. And in dying and in rising again, He redeems and saves. What an incentive we have to keep the law, to begin with a genuine resolve to keep this law again. What gratitude is worked in us to begin to keep this law of God again. And what power we have. Do not say I can't. The old man cannot. But the name of God in you is the new man in Jesus Christ. And he can. We can. With a small beginning. But a genuine desire. Then... When even now, recognizing that we fall short, though we wanted to, though we meant to, how far short we fall, we have a hope, the day of heaven, when we will use the name of Jehovah God to all eternity, no otherwise than with fear and reverence. The school of the law, Jehovah says to us, and, God, and Christ says to us, you know how you will live someday? Start living that way now. Amen. Father which art in heaven, how great our sins and miseries are. We have not used thy name with fear and reverence as we ought. Thy glory has not been confessed. We have not worshipped Thee aright. And we're prone to continue to commit these sins. May the word that we heard through a servant, but from Jesus Christ our Lord, be that word that spurs us on and reminds us that we have in Christ the power. And so sanctify us for Jesus' sake. Amen.